Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son? The fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Well, do keep your Bibles open, would you, at Genesis chapter 22, the chapter that was just read to us. While you're finding that, can I thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's a real privilege. I do thank God for the ongoing witness of of this church here. And uh, Neil is uh, in the fraternal, the three counties uh, affinity fraternal that we run for ministers um, in in beds, hearts and uh, bucks. And uh, it's been a great encouragement to have Neil there. He's been a great encouragement to me personally. I do thank God for him and for Jeff. 
Well, unless you have been through it personally, it's very difficult to fully comprehend the grief of a parent when a child dies. Uh, Roger Bacon from London is the father of Major Matthew Bacon, who was killed by a roadside bomb in Basra in September 2005 at the age of 34. Now, a couple of days ago, when Roger Bacon was asked about his son's death, I think it was in connection with the appearance by Tony Blair at the Chilcot Inquiry, Mr. Bacon said, It was my birthday, and we'd been away for the weekend. On the way home, we heard on the radio that a patrol had been attacked in Basra and that a soldier had been killed. My wife Maureen said, I I hope it's not Matthew. I said he doesn't do routine patrols, but when we got home, we discovered that there were two military guys who were trying to find us. They came in and said... I think you'd both better sit down. And he said, it's impossible to describe how it felt. You become an automaton. You go into deep shock. It's extremely painful. It's very difficult to know how you go about your daily business. But somehow you carry on eating and getting dressed. I was reading as well that the grieving father of a young Northern Ireland soldier who was killed in Afghanistan a short time ago He too was devastated by the death of his son. My own tribute to Nigel, he said, is the same as to my wife before she died. I will miss the empty chair. And as we're reminded of the ultimate sacrifice of young men and women laying their lives down in the armed forces, not least during this time of the Chilcot Inquiry, we give thanks to God for such men, for their families, but it forces us to recognise afresh the impact upon parents when a child dies before them. Maybe one or two of you have had that experience. There's that feeling of it shouldn't be. It's a shattering experience. The loss of a son or daughter. Well, here in Genesis 22... It was the anticipated loss of a son. That was the sacrifice that Abraham was called by God to make. Except that if it were possible, it was even potentially worse than simply hearing he had been killed by others because Abraham himself was to wield the knife. Well, let's get into the story. I want us to see, first of all, faith in God means trusting him in the dark. Firstly then, faith in God means trusting God in the dark. Look there with me at verse 1. It'll come up on the screen. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, clearly, this is a test from God. Not a negative test to trip Abraham up. That would be a temptation. And only the devil tempts us, the Bible says. But God tests us to grow our faith in him and in his word. To refine our faith, if you like, as the Apostle Peter puts it in the New Testament. How are we to respond then when God leads us through dark paths? 
How are we to react when God leads us along paths that we feel we can't see where we're going? We can't see the outcome, far less see the immediate way ahead even. Well, for Abraham, this was one of those tests. It was a test in darkness. It's quite probable that child sacrifice was around in those parts. Certainly, it would have been in Ur of the Chaldees, from where Abraham had been called by God, right around the Fertile Crescent and down into Canaan, along the journey that God had called him upon. But there's no evidence of this in the Genesis account, in terms of the, uh, um, the fact that child sacrifice went on at that time, there's nothing of that recorded here in the passage. I think we should assume that Abraham was as baffled at God's command, as troubled, as distressed, as confused by it, as any parent here would have been who has children. Let me say, and let's be clear, can we? This was an unambiguous revelation of the Lord to his friend Abraham. This account isn't a license to anyone in any state of mental unbalance to do weird or wacky things with their children. This wasn't an idea in Abraham's head. This was a clear command of God that had to be obeyed. Not to do so would have been disobedience. Abraham had to trust God in the dark as he was called by God to do the most unimaginable thing in all the world to sacrifice his one and only son that God had given to him as the most amazing answer to prayer. Yes, Abraham also had another son, of course, Ishmael, but Isaac was the child of promise. This was the son on whom all of his Anticipation for the future rested. And numb with fear, he set out to obey. I doubt that there was very much chit-chat. Do you, as Abraham and Isaac set out on that journey, having saddled his donkey and cut up the wood for the sacrifice? On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, verse 5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we will come back to you. Trusting God in the dark. And yet, the apparent lie to the servant, we will worship and then we will come back to you, was actually a truth based on faith. Because secondly, not only was Abraham trusting God in the dark, faith means trusting that God will keep his promises. Faith means trusting that God will keep his promises. As uh, Abraham was walking up the mountain, the emotional peak of the account comes in verses 7 and 8, which will come up on the screen behind me. When Isaac looks down and says, verse 7, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replies. Don't you think that Abraham's been working, waiting for Isaac to work this out? The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham looks at his son and says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, within, within those few words the nub of the problem is laid bare. 
God has promised to give Abraham many descendants and he's made it clear that this is through the line of Isaac, the child of promise. Therefore, how come Isaac is about to be killed? As we would say today, it doesn't add up. God was going to have to do something extraordinary to fulfil his own promise. And Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19, gives us a little window into Abraham's mind. I don't think that it takes away the fear, the numbness, the confusion that Abraham would have been going through. He's not Superman. He was a man just like us, a sinner just like us. But he is a man of faith. He does know what it is to trust God in the dark because he knows that God is a God who's always faithful to his promises. And in Hebrews 11:17 we read, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, it's referring to this chapter, to this episode, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. But please make no mistake, Abraham was trusting God in the dark. By faith he reasoned out possibly how God was going to resolve this unresolvable situation. But at this stage, he didn't know for certain, did he? Maybe God had some other way he was going to do it. Probably Abraham, as he was there, was thinking, but if God is going to raise him from the dead, at what point is that going to happen? Bodies decompose quickly in the heat. How? The the, the how, Abraham had no answers to. And as they reached the place that God had told him about, he built the altar, he arranged the wood on it, he bound his son Isaac, doubtless having perhaps talked more with him, There's no suggestion here that he had to lasso Isaac in order to stop him running away. Isaac too is trusting God at this point and in every sense trusting Dad too, that Dad knows what he's doing. And as Abraham takes the knife and lifts the knife up, having reached out his hand, at this crucial moment there is the cry from heaven, Abraham, don't do it. There's the ram in the thicket. The ram is sacrificed as the burnt offering. And as the readers, we breathe a collective sigh of relief. And yet, and yet, Genesis 22 does end with unanswered questions. What is it all about? Is it just a test? Is it an extreme test? Is Abraham passing the spiritual Krypton factor? The most difficult test that came to anybody in the Old Testament and yet he passes it. Is it just to give him credit in some way? What's it all about? Sure there's a ram but why Abraham's son? Why the substitute? Both Abraham and Isaac seem familiar with the idea of the sacrifice of a lamb to God. Isaac inquires where the lamb is but no lamb shows up. A full grown ram is there. What's going on exactly? There are unanswered questions. 
Well, there is a second stage in this unfolding revelation in the Old Testament that occurs in Exodus. With Moses in uh, the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 12, with the plagues having come to the Egyptians one by one, with God commanding Pharaoh, let my people go, Pharaoh resisting, another plague comes. And so it goes on through the different plagues. You will know the story, many of you I know. But we eventually reach the final plague, the final horrific act of judgment of God against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, where God says to Moses in Exodus 12, verse 12, On this same night I will pass through Egypt. I will strike down every firstborn son, every firstborn both of men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood I will pass over, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see, the judgment that was coming would pass over all people indiscriminately. Egyptians and Israelites, judgment was coming. But for the Israelites, a way of escape was given. They were to kill a lamb Its blood was to be put upon the doorposts. And if they were in their house, when the destroying angel came, death would not come to that house. The firstborn son would go free, would stay alive, would be, as it were, given his life. Again, God says the firstborn must die. The only hope was explicitly said to be a lamb. Tell the whole community of Israel, Moses, that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. What was to be done on that night was to then be repeated annually as a reminder that God's judgment, the awesome price of sin, was to be placed upon the lamb So the firstborn son each year would go free. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel, we read later on in chapter 12, and said to them, go at once, select the animals for your families, slaughter what became known as the Passover lamb, redeem with a lamb every firstborn among your sons. Look, here are the two principles, very quickly. All people are sinners. All people are sinners. Genesis 22 is pointing us towards a big overarching truth that hangs over the whole of Scripture and that becomes clearer and clearer as we work our way through. God tells the Israelites that after you've put the blood on the door, you mustn't go outside. The destroying angel, you see, is coming for everyone. He's no respecter of persons. If you were an Israelite, firstborn son, out and about on that night, you would meet judgment on on any basis, just like the Egyptians. You're no better than them. You deserve judgment too. If you go out tonight, you meet judgment on your own. Whatever your race or religion, your doctrine or ethical behaviour, it will count for nothing. But second principle, not only is all people a sinner, secondly, our only hope is a substitute. In every single house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. In other words, for the Israelites, the lamb paid the debt so the son didn't have to. Do you get it? 
So every firstborn son in the Hebrew home looked at the dead lamb and said, the only reason I'm alive is that that lamb paid the price that I deserve from a holy God. Emotionally, socially, psychologically, there's a debt. We haven't been living as we should. The principle of substitution in the Bible is foundational to how salvation is given, how rescue is given. And yet, you know, this isn't the last chapter on this. The Israelites politically were the victims. When God said they weren't to go outside the house, he was saying this isn't the ultimate deliverance. As important though this deliverance was, and important as lambs are, you need a bigger deliverance. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. I want to develop in the moments we have left. Faith in God means trusting that he has provided. Faith in God means trusting that he has provided. If we could have that third heading up on the screen, please. Jesus Christ, on the night that he is betrayed celebrates a Passover meal many centuries later after Moses. He asks his disciples to get together to celebrate what? To celebrate the Passover meal that the people of Israel have been celebrating every year ever since they were saved through the Passover when the Egyptians begged them to leave. And Jesus asks his disciples to get together to celebrate the Passover meal. While they're eating, Jesus takes the bread and acting as the presider, as the father of the gathering, he starts to speak to them. You know, when the Passover is celebrated by, uh, by the Jews, the presider takes the bread and says something like, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be free. Whether Jesus has said that earlier or not, we simply don't know, we're not told. But what he did now, as he institutes a new meal was certainly astonishing. Taking the bread, Jesus says these words, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction, in other words, that I am going to suffer. I'm going to give you the ultimate freedom. Freedom not from political oppression and so on, but from the ultimate enemies of sin and death itself. This is my suffering, which will be the ultimate liberation for all who trust me. But there is another shock there. Not only does Jesus take the bread and then the wine, but he does something else. You have different things at a Passover meal. You have the unleavened bread. There's Jesus handing out the bread. Here's my body. You have the the different cups of wine. There's Jesus taking one cup, saying, this is my blood, as he institutes this new meal. But with this new meal that Jesus is instituting, Having invested the bread and the wine with a fresh and brand new significance, he doesn't take the lamb and speak of that too. The lamb was a vital part of the Passover meal. But as Jesus institutes this new meal at the time of the Passover meal that he's celebrating with his disciples, he doesn't do that. When we break bread and wine as a church family, however many times a month you do that, There's no roast lamb that's served. There was to be no lamb in this new covenant meal. Do you know why? Because the lamb is in future not to be on the table. Because at the Lord's table, the Lord, the host, is the lamb. The lamb is hosting at the table, if you like. 
The lamb was deliberately removed from the table for this new meal Jesus was instituting because he was saying, tonight I am the lamb. My death is the central event to which all of history of God's relationship to the world has been moving. Tonight, I am giving that ultimate sacrifice. A sacrifice to which Abraham could only look forward as a distant prospect, knowing simply that all nations of the world were going to be blessed through his son, who he was figuratively given back as from the dead. And all nations of the world would be blessed through Isaac. Jesus was born in the human descent of Abraham and of Isaac's line. And it's that event to which Moses himself looked. Moses could only say, look, I'll take you out of Egypt politically, but if you, if you go out from under the blood of the Lamb tonight, I can't deliver you from death. I can't do it permanently either. There need to be regular sacrifices. You can read about them in the first five books of the Bible, especially in the book of, uh, especially in the book of Leviticus. Tonight, says Jesus at the Passover, all those years later, I'm removing that dead of sin once for all. This is a night unlike all other nights. This is the reason why John the Baptist one day, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, says, as Jesus comes to be baptised, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. John the Baptist is saying at that moment, I get it. Our firstborn sons were not saved because of some little white lambs, no matter how sweet they were. No, our firstborn and we ourselves are saved because God is giving up his firstborn. And you see, that's the answer to Isaac's question and to Abraham's dilemma. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? There were those hints. That's what they were revelatory hints of what was to come. And at that moment, what Abraham did not know, could not know, but God was allowing Abraham to act out what would happen many centuries later. Abraham, I'm going to walk up a mountain with my son and I'm going to lay him on wood and no one will say stop. No one will be able to say stop. Abraham, the reason that your only beloved son won't have to die is because mine did. Jesus' bones were not broken, as John points out. John 19.33, he was the lamb without spot or blemish. He died at twilight because the lamb was to be slain at twilight. The story of the lamb in the Bible, Abraham's chapter, chapter 22 of Genesis, says there's a debt. Your firstborn must die. Jesus dies as God's son. But he doesn't stay dead. He's raised from the dead. He's the lamb upon the throne. Look, there's much that we could say of this as we apply it. Can I just say these points? Firstly, don't let the fact that we live in a society that emphasises the individual rights of people Don't let your cultural individualism blind you to the fact that you have a debt that has to be paid. Don't let that be hidden from you. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is silent. Because at that moment, Jesus Christ is paying your debt, your sin debt. The one who was perfect 
being regarded by his father as if he were a sinner. Being punished by God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit for your sin. And secondly, Jesus had to die, you see. He he had to die. It's the only thing that makes sense of the Gospels where we see the accounts of Jesus' life. And Jesus himself has been there trusting God in the dark. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, look, Mark, if anyone has to trust God in the dark, it's me right now. I can't see the way ahead. I have someone very close to me who's very ill. We just don't know what tomorrow holds. Or the threat of redundancy is hanging over me big time. I don't know where my next paycheck's coming from. Maybe it's other issues, other relationship issues that you are facing. Maybe the relationship issues are someone close to you and you're seeing them go through the mill and you feel so powerless as a parent. Maybe for you it's you're in retirement years. You know that your own death is not too far away. And you say, talk about trusting God in the dark. I don't know whether I'm going to be seeing the end of 2010. And if I do, I know I may not have many years left. You see, the remarkable fact is that Genesis 22, in pointing us to Christ the Lamb, who will one day die in our place, tells us that God is with us in the dark. He knows what it's like. As Jesus was there... In Gethsemane, just hours before he was going to give his life, recognising that he was going to drink the cup of God's judgement, he himself knew what lay ahead and yet knew it was darkness. Jesus himself is gripped by trouble. If you were making it all up, you wouldn't put those things in about Jesus being troubled. You'd want to portray Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, as being a sort of untouchable Superman. You wouldn't put in that he was crying out in prayer to God to let him off the hook. There have been many people from the dead, and he is now with you by his Spirit as you too trust God in the dark. What greater comfort can he bring? Those aren't words of platitude. He doesn't say, there, there, I'm sure you'll be fine. I'm waiting for you at the end. He's actually there with you at every stage. And you must trust him as you think of that cross, recognising that he gave his life, that you need not be fearful. Trust him in the dark. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He's passed through the tunnel. He's come out the other side. He's ruling and reigning and he is with you as you pass through your own challenges and darkness. But secondly, and with this I close, you say, yeah, that's all very well, but I'm talking about the darkness of eternity. How do I know what's beyond the grave? That's a vital question probably the most important question anyone could ever ask. And the answer, you see, is amazingly found in Christ the Lamb. Because by giving his life, by dying so you don't have to, 
He's come back from the darkness to tell us, I've prepared a place for all who'll trust me. You don't need to be fearful now of death. I've pulled the sting of death. Trust me. And whereas for Abraham, he thought God would have to either provide a lamb somewhere or he would raise his son from the dead, we now stand this side of the cross. God has provided. He's provided the lamb, Jesus Christ, who says, look to me, trust me, beautiful saviour, glorious Lord. And if you've never done that, then it's the most urgent, vital, important thing you can ever do. He not only strengthens us through the darkness now, he removes the eternal darkness of of an eternity away from him under his judgment, a place the Bible calls hell, and replaces it with eternal life where you too can be with the Lamb forever.